Welcome to the HR Like a Boss podcast. I'm your host, John Bernadovich. Thank you so much for listening. Please consider liking, commenting, subscribing, and sharing with a friend. I've embarked on a journey to get to know amazingly awesome HR and business professionals with the hope to find out what it takes to do HR like a boss. On today's show, I'm so excited to be joined by Lou Adler. Lou Adler and his team had reached out to us about being on the HR Like a Boss podcast, and I was so excited to have him on today's show. Lou, welcome to the HR Like a Boss podcast. Hey, John. Thank you for being here, and thank you for taking my invitation or my request for an invitation. Of course. Yeah, you and your team do a great job marketing, and I know I've followed you for years, and my team has as well, us being in the staffing business. Really appreciate your thought leadership and all that you've been doing. But for those that don't know Lou Adler, Feel free to tell them a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you're working on these days. Sure. Thank you, John. Yeah, my background is kind of unusual. I've been a recruiter for many years. I haven't done that probably for 10 years, but my first 10 years in industry, which was many years ago, I was in manufacturing, finance, accounting, engineering. Uh, didn't like my group president. I was running a little manufacturing company. Quit four times in one year decide I'm going to become a recruiter for some unknown reason. It was really, and this is many, many years ago. But as I got into recruiting, I realized it was a business process. If you did everything right, how you define the job, how you found candidates, how you interviewed candidates, how you created the career option and the career move, and then delivered on the promise. And I realized that it took a long time to get to that, but hiring was a business process. And my background was in engineering and manufacturing processes, so it was easy to see that. And that eventually became performance-based hiring. And I've written a number of books about it. And we now train companies on how to implement that business process called performance-based hiring. Yeah, awesome. And I know I've done some research on that and studied as well. Maybe for the sake, before we get into the regular questions on the podcast, I'll start with, what, is that, what does that mean to you? What does performance-based hiring mean to you? Well, the best way to describe it is my first search assignment. And this was in 1978 when I became a recruiter. So obviously many, many, many years ago, uh, it was for a plant manager in an automotive manufacturing facility making uh, accessory products for hot rods, which was in Southern California and the Beach Boys. So that was hot then. I knew the president said he's looking for a plant manager. So he went out and he gave me a job description, 10 years of experience, manufacturing background, automotive background, had to have this, had to be all these attributes, competencies, academics. And I said to the guy, I said, Mike, that's not a job description. That is a person description. A job description doesn't have skills, duties, and competencies. A person does. Let's put the job, the person description in the parking lot and tell me what you want the person to do. He said, that's a good question. No recruiters ever asked me that. And I was only recruited for three days at the time, but it seemed so obvious to me. Uh, so he, he said, I got somebody to turn around the manufacturing plant. I said, fine, let's go through the manufacturing plant. Spent an hour walking through it. We found a lot of manufacturing problems. And I said, I'll find somebody who can fix those. And we did find. Three weeks later, we hired somebody from me who could fix those. Uh, background was, had some years of experience, didn't have exactly the background. But all of a sudden, when you focus on performance objectives rather than skills, you just open a talent pool to everybody. Uh, so now you've got to assess candidates around, have they done work similar to that? Do they see the job you're offering a career move? And if it does and your salary is competitive, it doesn't have to be the best. But if you have the best career move and a competitive salary, you're actually going to hire good people. But that's really the basis of performance-based hiring. And since 1978, a thousand 
situations later or more, I have never used the job description listing skills, duties, and responsibilities. Always say, what does the person need to do to be successful? And we'll find someone who can do that work. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I pre certainly appreciate that. It, so wise, you had that back, even your, your engineering mindset and education gave you that, that simple, uh, well, at least in your perspective, simple question to ask, which obviously was profound to the hiring manager at that time. That's really neat. Thanks for sharing the story. It gave a lot of context. And I did it. I did it last week with a systems architect. I had 10 years of this. I had to have background in this, design these kind of software products. I said, what was it, Henry? I said, Henry, put that in the parking lot. What do you want the person to do? It was architect. They knew system on a cloud that could do, had all these features. Fine. That's what we'll find someone who can do that. But don't get hung up on the skills. People are going to tell their friends, they're not going to, not going to go tell their friends, I'm taking this job at your company uh, because all these skills I have and I get more of them I'm going to, because there's this work I'm doing and it works important to me and I like doing that work. I mean, so it's so logical that you would do that. What's illogical is defining work based on skills, duties, and responsibilities. That's what makes and it. If you'd say what my mission in life, John, is why do people think that that's a way to job define a job description based on using attributes of a person? No, use attributes of the job and get make that an attractive job for the right people. And all of a sudden, people will start applying. Yeah, that sounds rocket science, but it's kind of common sense to me. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally understand. It's, it, you mentioned something in that process that, that kind of opened up. So as a result of that kind of performance-based hiring, you and, and not focusing on skills and competencies requirements, you feel like you open up the talent pool of people that can do that job versus ones that have 10 years of manufacturing experience on this type of system, et cetera. You feel like you have a broader Well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, pool. the thing you don't compromise is on the skills, duties, and on the work itself. And now anybody who's motivated and competent to do that work has the right to apply and be assessed based on their ability to do that work, not on these artificial attributes of 10 years or this kind of academic background. Now, right. what's interesting is obviously when I started doing this after about 10 years, I started getting pushback from HR. No, you can't define a work that way because I started getting a lot of search business. So I started reaching out to labor attorneys. And in the books I've written, and one book is Higher With Your Head, I reached out to the number one labor attorney in the country, David Goldstein at Littler Mendelssohn, which is the number one labor attorney in the country, a labor firm. And I said, can you define work based on performance objectives rather than list the skills? So he looked at it and said, of course you can. In fact, it's more objective. All you need is objective criteria. The fact that you say 10 years appears to be objective because it's got a quantification to it, it's why isn't it five years? Why isn't it 20 years? Why'd you make 10 years? You just arbitrarily took it. So you took a subjective number and it appears to be objective, but it's not. So he said, the reality is you open up the whole talent pool to more diverse and non-traditional candidates when you focus on performance objectives, which you're not going to compromise. They have to do that work and they have to be motivated and competent to do that work. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, thank you for that. So we'll get into the formal questions on the HR Like a Boss podcast, which I always start off with the, the idea around the purpose of HR. So how would you describe the purpose of the human resource function within an organization, Lou? Well, that's kind of a broad question because my, my focus is on hiring. So I'm going to go back to a client that I had. Again, this was probably in the mid-80s. He was VPHR of a medical manufacturing company in Southern California, Orange County, where I live. And he said to me, and the guy was great. The primary purpose of my position is to get great people hired. That is my strategic win for the company. Everything else is secondary or tertiary to that. 
compliance is tertiary. Everything is tertiary. It is to get the best people and get my hiring manager, my team, understand that they got to hire great people. It was just a breath of fresh air. I have not heard many HR people believe that to be true. So again, my focus, John, is clearly on the hiring process. It's not on the compliance. Yes, I know you got to do all this stuff. But to me, HR should focus on what do I have to do to raise the town bar and get great people in here? And that to me is what I would define as the purpose. And yet I don't find a lot of HR people, they might conceptually talk that, but they don't have the, uh, maybe it's the leadership skills to implement that. But to me, that is the difference maker between a great HR person and somebody who's just making sure the company's in compliance. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. I actually have a section in my book, Lou, that I talk about really encouraging the HR profession to make recruiting and hiring and bringing in top talent a primary responsibility for theirs, if not the most, because it's the one that's most easily associated with them. And uh, from an HR standpoint, it gives them an opportunity. Like when you think of HR outside of human resources, it's about finding talent and the people that work here. I wonder, I wonder at that same notion, I t- I've talked to a lot of HR pros who, when I ask them, what do you want to do? They say, I don't want to do recruiting. Right. So what, what do you think causes them to feel like this disconnect between how important and associated talent is with HR and a lot of generalist HR professionals just say that might be listening right now, they really don't have a passion for recruiting. Yeah, to me, that's the idea that now maybe then recruiting shouldn't be in the HR function, but they're not in human resources. Uh, so I'd say that is you've hit it right there in the head. That is the problem why a top HR person doesn't want to have recruiting, I don't believe, and I'm just going to be very, they shouldn't be in HR then. Only people who should be HR leaders are those who do have a passion for bringing great people in. And if they don't have a, if they have a passion for compliance or labor, uh, whatever it may be, they shouldn't be the head of the HR department. So I know that that sounds crude and hard and frank, but that's how I truly believe. How could you possibly think the most important asset in your company is your people, hiring them and developing and promoting them and keep them engaged. If that isn't the number one criteria, they shouldn't be the HR leader. Sorry to say, that's how I believe to be true. And that's why I believe we have a fundamental problem of why we haven't gotten better at hiring better people. Mm. This is going to be a controversial statement, but I believe it to be absolutely true. Well, I, we'll, we'll double down on the controversy because I, I agree with you hundred percent. I even write in my book that if you're not into that, you don't have a passion for it or love for it all the things that come with HR, you should get out of the function because the world needs leaders in HR more than any other time, in my opinion, with what's going on with the pandemic. So let me tap into that, John. So literally, I have interviewed 5,000 people. And I've been around in this industry for 40 plus years. Plus, I had 10 years in industry where I was on a pretty good fast track and met with some remarkable people. So I've had an opportunity to track outstanding people in all different functions from the day they started in their first professional job, engineer, accountant, sales rep, marketing person, uh, and track them 5, 10, 15, 20 years till they move up to the executive level. Not obviously everyone didn't get there, but there's a clear pattern of people who move forward from a technical expertise to developing others, training others, managing projects, learning systems, becoming multifunctional, uh, becoming strategic, becoming collaborative, working with the different uh, groups. And you can see this build the staircase of executive success. HR doesn't go through that same 
staircase. They don't have that same, yet engineering does, manufacturing does, sales does, accounting does, marketing does, but HR doesn't. They go into the compliance and they get promoted and rewarded for things that no one else gets promoted and rewarded for. It's, hey, let's be safe. Let's avoid problems. Let's have not have legal suits. So that mentality gets people to the executive level in HR. And unfortunately, the people who should get HR executives are those who have, no, I want to hire, I want to get into recruiting. I want to hire better people. I want to train my people how to uh, get better people. So that avenue of who should be the leader in HR, they should have come through uh, a recruiting function and have aced it. If they haven't aced a recruiting function, I don't think they should be the head of HR. That's, um, that to me is a box that can't be missed. It's got to be there and they have to have a passion for that. And they have to kind of, okay, I'll handle the compliance I can do it, but I don't have to be great at it. You just got to do it. And I recognize it has to be done, but they, you can't compromise on being great at hiring great people. That's how I see it. And I'm going to stick to my guns and my best HR people. And I've met a lot of them. Uh, I met one last week was just remarkable. I said, you don't sound like a typical HR person. And she said, I'm not. I came up through distribution and operations. I said, oh, of course, that's why. And then she got it. So her boss said, you know, you'd be pretty good in HR. And she went in there and it, but she had a passion for, uh, she knew that as a hiring manager, you had to hire great people. She had projects, she had collaborative skills, she had strategic, you could just see she was a remarkable person. Uh, and she was a remarkable person, but she didn't start in HR. Now, but she had this broad-based business background and she clearly could be a CEO of some company someday. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Perfect segue into my next question. It's going to be a two-parter because I think I want to be cognizant of the people that are listening to the podcast that are in HR and are listening to what you're saying and saying, well, how do I get that diverse level experience? How can I become better at that role? And so I'll start with the first part, which is how do we suggest leaders and executives to recruit non-HR business professionals into HR? Let's start there. And then after that, I want to talk about, okay, I'm in HR. How do I get that broader, I'll call it business-related experience so I can become a better executive and business person? So let's start with recruiting non-HR business pros into the field of HR? What's your thoughts there? Well, I, mean, I, I think they're not, they were really the same question. So let's just kind of suggest that. And somebody asked me, how did you get ahead? I mean, they just said, and so I think this now, is this a principle that everyone should follow? I don't know that. But what I did is I volunteered for jobs and for work that I was not qualified for. I took over things. So if I screwed it up, no one would feel bad. There was no risk associated with it. I remember kind of taking a project it was in, uh, we were making manufacturing handheld calculators and we were going to go head to head. This was many years ago when the first consumer electronics came out. I said, I'll do the whole capacity planning and the whole analysis and, and put the presentation together, the executive team to see if we should do it. And they said, why are you doing that? I know because I didn't be fun, number one. I think intellectually I can do it, but I also knew if I screwed it up, nobody would care because it was way over my head. So then I, I was in the finance and accounting, and then I took, hey, I want to be the director of logistics for that division. Well, you never had that background. He said, I don't care. I'll go to Apex thing, get certified, and I'll take the job. Again, nobody thought I could do it. And that, so there's no risk in taking a job that's above you. Everyone would think there is a risk. No, there's no risk. Everyone would know you, you'd screw it up anyway. If you don't screw it up, you're a hero. So as stupid as that sounds, is take on projects that you're not qualified to handle that are a bit of a stretch, 20, 30% stretch, and ask for it. Number one, just asking for it, you get kudos. Say, hey, this is a good guy. He's really aggressive. And if you screw it up, 
nobody's going to care because you shouldn't have got it anyway, but you won't screw it up because most of these jobs are common sense. If you get, you're halfway smart, you're willing to work hard, you can deal with people, you can solve problems, you're going to get the thing done. Now, obviously, you can't take a 100% increase, but you can. everybody can take a stretch at 20 to 30%. Now, you got to be willing to work hard and volunteer for that. And I don't think if you're an HR going into non-HR functions, that'd be pretty cool. I mean, you certainly demonstrate, hey, I don't want to be an HR. I want to learn. So you think about the building blocks that anybody should have. You have to manage a group. You have to manage a project. You have to understand systems. You have to be cross-functional. You have to get into strategic and product or planning of some type. So you take jobs that give you those kinds of uh, components in building your career ladder. And I think once you start doing that, it's okay, I'm going to do it. And I know you can go into HR and non-HR and back and forth. Uh, and all of them involve dealing and managing people and probably hiring and identifying people. So to me, you get those experiences. So that's kind of a principle that I think covers both of your questions, I think, if not. but And it turns out to be kind of fun if you enjoy work. If you don't want to work hard, well, that's uh, you're out of luck. That ain't going to happen then. Yeah, no, you made, made me think of two distinct things because there's a couple things in my professional career that I wasn't really good at and I could I could not accept that. So I just ran toward them and did them more as opposed to did them less. And it's really come to be a unique part of my career in many, 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 many facets. The other thing that stands out to me is there's a lot of people that I've heard quite a bit, at least recently, there's certain things they don't want to do and they just aren't going to do them. Right. They're just not I don't want to do that. It's hard. It's I don't like it. I don't see the value on it. And I, I think that's a to your point. If you don't try something out, I know, at least with my kids, every once in a while, they don't want to do something. As soon as I force them to go do it, guess what? Big smiles on their face. I want to go back and do You're that. Right. Again. I mean, it's and I think when you do when you cross that career gap on something you're uncomfortable doing and you don't know, you actually gain confidence. Oh, that wasn't as hard as I thought it was. Uh, and it really is a safety net because if you screw up, nobody cares or they didn't expect you to do it anyway. They just get credit for trying. But then you say, well, I actually pulled that off. So then you take a, you keep on doing that. So that's how you accelerate your career growth. You can get five years experience or 10 years experience in two or three years. And that's why I go back to what I said earlier, John, is that you can't compromise in the work that needs to be done, but the best people grow faster. And I remember talking to someone at Broadcom, which is a chip manufacturing company, in fact, made the uh, and they still do make chips for the Apple phone. But I remember working with them when the first Apple phone came out in 2008. And I was dealing with the VP of engineering there. And he said he needed a new, and he wouldn't tell me what the product was, but it was the Apple phone. I, and I didn't guess that. I did. He said, we got this new client. They're building a state-of-the-art chip and we need 10 years experience. And I said, what are they doing? And it was architecting a new chip, uh, you know, uh, microchip. Uh, so I said, so if you had somebody who could architect that chip, uh, and had five years experience and didn't have a PhD, you wouldn't want to see him? I said, oh, of course I'd see him. Well, you won't because your posting says must have 10 years and a PhD. So it's the architecting the chip that you want, want to compromise on. So don't compromise on that. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to attract some great people who can't, they're going to put a state-of-the-art chip together. It's so exciting. So you just start thinking about all these things of how, and that's why I say HR people don't think that way. But if an HR person had this multifunctional experience, stretched jobs, looked at things, realized they would come to the same common sense solution is we do everything stupidly. Why would we write job descriptions asking for average people who, and we want, we want a great people, but we're willing to give them an ill-advised and ill-defined lateral transfer. Hey, come do the bo same boring work you've already done. Don't get stretched and do it at our company and we'll pay you more. So the only value proposition is you're giving more pay. 
Now, why do people continue to do it? I mean, I look at that and say, that's not very smart. In my opinion, it's not very smart. Uh, when you look at uh, what, and we spend billions of dollars to do stuff to fill jobs with people who are uh, in the bottom half. That's why I look at it. it makes no sense to me. Mm. And this is going to be somewhat of a controversial podcast for you, John. So you might have to kill it. <laughs> not at all. No, keep it coming. People need to think differently and get different perspectives. And if something's not, if something's not working, you just can't keep doing the same thing. And I know, Lou, you've had a ton of experience hiring a, a lot of people for your clients in your career. And I know, I know when we uh, prepared for today's uh, podcast interview, you talked about the difference, the difference of hiring leaders than hiring people that are not in a leadership position. Do you mind sharing like what that means to you and, and why, why do people seem to not get that part right? Well, let me say, and, I, and this is where I have to apologize, hiring leaders I contend anybody can be a leader. Uh, you can be on the factory floor running a warehouse department. And if you're in the top 25%, you're a leader. You could even be just running the picking orders and you could be a leader. So I don't want to comply that it's, uh, so let's call it executive level positions are obviously leaders, managers are obviously leaders. Anybody in the top 25% is obviously a leader. So let me leave it at that. And they say, when you want to hire the top 25%, you got to be different. Those people are more discriminating. They're not looking for jobs. They might be induced to have a conversation about a career opportunity if it was better than what they're doing, but it's a it's a high touch process. It's a slower process. You got to it's it covers more variables, not just the pay package, but also the actual work you're doing, who they're doing it with, the learning opportunities. Uh, the company culture, how systems and decisions are made. So there's a lot of variables that have to be tied together. And people say, oh, it's too complicated. We can't do it. Well, if you spend more time with the right people, you actually can do it in a shorter period of time, and you'll hire the top 25% or at least raise the talent bar, as opposed to saying, let's go as efficient as possible, filling jobs with people. The only differentiator is we're going to pay more. Well, pay, once you get above a threshold of a competitive compensation, Yes, everybody wants more, but the truth is once you get above a competitive compensation for that job, people look at, hey, my pay next year could be 50 or 30% better because I'm growing faster. So people look at, hey, what I get on the day one. I say, no, let's look at what they're going to get on year one and year two. Now, all of a sudden, that's the decision that people have to make. And to me, that's when I said about hiring leaders, it's a different process. High touch, more variables, spend more time with fewer people. Uh, and think about it, how the best people make career decisions and map your hiring process to those people, not to how you fill jobs, which is what most technology does. Hmm. Yeah, when you were talking about the comparison of uh, all, all people are leaders, it, it speaks really well to the book as well, because the, the, the book is titled HR Like a Boss. And everyone thinks, okay, I have to be a boss then in order to, to, to get the concept of this. Well, no, re really anyone can be a boss. The a student just starting their, their education in HR or an intern or a new hire that's just starting in a talent acquisition department. We're all, we're all looking for people to, to own what they do and love what they do. That's one of the, the cornerstones of doing HR like a boss. And I think you're right about you know, leaders. Leaders are not necessarily uh, someone in charge uh, or executive level. I think there's a, there's a, we need leaders everywhere, everywhere in our society and our businesses and all all shapes and sizes. I think that's a really unique point. And also that's the idea is that if you put a job posting, you exclude those people who are leaders. 
These are the people who get done who get more done with less. So, uh, and then you artificially exclude them. You've not, in, I shouldn't say, inadvertently exclude them because you have a criteria that doesn't predict leadership. Um, and that's why the performance-based hiring process does take that into account. Hey, we're not going to compromise on this work that needs to get done. And I totally support that. But give us the, where the variable is, is the mix of skills, experience, and competencies needed to do that work. Sometimes results-oriented might be a quiet person who works behind the scenes to get accomplished a lot because he or she trains a lot of people. So if you put results-oriented on your uh, job description and interview based on what you perceive to be this aggressive, assertive person, well, you missed the fact that this person was aggressive and assertive in a low-key way. So it's even defining those kinds of terms that are so important during the assessment process and even in the filtering process. Yeah, no, I hear you. Well, if I could take a quick moment, Lou, we'll take a half tent break. And I'm not uh, Snoop Dogg or Dr. Dre from the Super Bowl recently, but I wanted to thank our sponsor who's near and dear to my heart. Willery has supported the formation and continues to provide resources needed to put on this podcast. Willery's purpose is to empower people and is focused on supporting mid-sized companies with their search and staffing services, along with a unique client-side HR technology consulting practice. So if you're struggling to find talent for your HR and payroll teams, or you're not getting the return on your investment in your HR technology, please visit willery.com to learn more. Always an odd part for me to give a plug for my own firm in the middle of a interview, Lou. Maybe, maybe have you ever done that before? Ever had uh, anyone stop in one of your interviews and say, "Hey, well, hap happens all the time." So I can just uh, go along and support it. So I think you have to do it, and happy to have you do it, and glad that it's uh, helpful. And hopefully, this helps you sell more books. Yeah, thank you, sir. And more business, or whatever you're trying to accomplish. So, just trying to make an impact. That's it. Just trying to make an impact. Have some fun and. Hopefully uh, pe people learn a thing or two along the way that makes their life a little bit easier or more successful. That's the simple part for me. Speaking of that, I know one of the key components of my book is uh, being strategic. We talk about being different, being better. That's the simplest way for me to think of strategy. Strategy always seemed like this elusive overthinking aspect, but to me it's simple around how are we different from our competitors? How am I different from other people within my organization? And how am I better? How, how do I have a competitive advantage? In your mind, what, what has prevented HR from being able to be more strategic? And what suggestions do you have to make that happen? Well, that's a great foundational question. And, a, and if you go on YouTube uh, and look for uh, a, a video that I did probably five or six or seven years ago with LinkedIn, and it's called Catch-22. And in that video, I describe and I say, uh, I ask people, tell me about all your hiring problems. Not enough people, not diverse enough. Managers aren't involved. Uh, we're not hiring. We're not seeing the right kind of people. And there was this host of problems. And this is how the video opens. And I basically say, those are all good problems. I don't say good. Those are all legitimate problems. The reason you have those problems is you got the wrong talent strategy. Your talent strategy assumes you're going to fill jobs with people who are fully qualified. Uh, and I'm going to say, and that's a weed out the weak talent strategy. We got these skills, people apply. And if you got abundance of great people applying, that's probably a reasonable strategy called weeding out the weak. But the reality is you screen out a lot of good people that way. A better talent strategy is attract the best, which is a different process, which is fundamentally everything I talk about in performance-based hiring hey, we're going to offer great jobs. 
that'll be not just jobs with a better pay package, but a great jobs that offer you a career opportunity, not for just the day, but year one and year two, and hopefully longer than that. But that's a different, that's an attract in strategy, much more high touch than a weed out the weak strategy, which is a high tech strategy. So if you don't get the strategy, talent strategy, right, you're never going to win. And I'm going to contend, John, in the last 25 years, uh, people have spent a billion, tens of billions of dollars on HR tech, and they haven't gotten any better. Quality of hire hasn't improved. They're still struggling to hire good people. They still spend more money on job postings. The biggest companies made most money are all the people who have job postings. And everyone knows job postings don't work. 1% of the people who apply to a job get a job. And they're not the best people. The best people get jobs because they're referred or they're networked or they're internal promotions. So when you benchmark how do the best people get jobs, you wouldn't do any of this stuff that people pay tens of billions of dollars for. And fundamentally, it's because they got the wrong talent strategy. It's a weed out the weak strategy versus attract the best strategy. And if you attract, build and attract the best strategy, you will attract better people. You'll spend more time with the right people. You'll have higher performance. You'll hire stronger people. You'll have higher job satisfaction, less turnover, less churn, and more performance and a true competitive advantage. And until HR buys into that thing about strategy, it's not going to get better. They're just going to invest more thing in trying to be more efficient, doing the wrong things. And to me, that's where you have the wrong strategy. So that's my take on strategy. And if you want to hear how I Heard about strategy when I was 25 years old. I'll tell you that story too. It might take about 90 seconds, but I'll leave that up to you. Bring it on. No, I love it. I, I've, I, I, as an, as a business owner, uh, as, as innate actions for me are just to do things. I remember when I first started my career it was a high activity based sales job. And I had to go, the more, more people I called on, the more chances I had to find a client that was going to hire uh, our firm to, to do their payroll when I worked back at ADP years ago. So I had this mindset of activity wins. And then over time, as I started my firm and we started to grow, I realized that we had differentiated ourselves, but it was just kind of by happen chance. It wasn't really strategic. And over the years, I've simplified strategy again down to those, how, how are we different? How are we better? And what are the gaps? What gaps exist so that we can try to create that competitive advantage, whether it be with our clients? Yeah, whether it be with our clients, with our partners, with the candidate, like what's making us different and better? Because that people are attracted to different and better. You yep. see the great athletes and the teams. But, and so the, so let's just take a look. The gap is filling the gap is your, we're going to fill that gap somehow. The tactic yes. is how do you fill the gap? But the strategy is so I'll just give you I was 25 give me the 90 I, seconds. Give it yeah. to me. Yep. I just I just got my MBA. I had an engineering undergraduate degree. Just got my MBA. Uh, and I was a financial analyst at one of the, it was the 37th largest company in the world, international company. And I was at the corporate headquarters. It was pretty cool for a 25 year old dealing with the board of directors and the chairman and the president of these big companies. Uh, and all I was doing is showing the slides at one of these uh, operational uh, view for his big group it was one of the biggest groups. I had done the evaluation of their budget. So I had the right to show the slides uh, but I wasn't supposed to say anything. There was the president there, the chairman, there was a couple of board members. And I remember the CFO, say after about five minutes or 10 minutes of this group president, and it was a multi-billion dollar group, so it was not an insignificant group, describing his business operating plan for the next year. And the CFO looked at him and stood up and said, this is a bunch of crap. You're giving me a lot of tactics. I want to hear your strategy. 
tactics don't drive strategy. Strategy drives tactics. And as far as I'm concerned, you got the wrong tactic. So come back next week. And he walks out and he said, and give me your strategy or we're not going to talk around here. And he walks out the room. And I'm 25 years old thinking this is like 30 people around the room and the CFO of this company walks out and I'm sitting there. I was blown away. But the concept of strategy drives tactics. And what I see in HR and in hiring, it's the tactics are driving the strategy. Hey, when you look at your strategy of posting boring jobs, trying to fill jobs uh, that are ill-defined, your tactics are saying, hey, we got to weed out the weak strategy and we'll wonder why we're not getting better. And that's why I say you got the wrong strategy. You got to attract the best, not weed out the weak. You make that change and all the other stuff falls into play. All the tactics are appropriate. Yeah, no, that's great. And I know to build off of that, Lou, as it relates to the concept that hiring and recruiting right now has is, is never been more complex or difficult for employers. And I think to your point, I'm assuming one of the key parts of a suggestion to HR business leaders to be more successful is to be more strategic, to not let the tactics drive the strategy. But again, using your words, let the strategy drive the tactics. Are there any other suggestions you have out there for my listeners who are struggling to find talent right now in this unique and complex environment? Well, the thing I would say, and we have a book club that meets once a uh, with your head book club. So if you just go to highwithyourhead.com, you can join the book club anytime. Uh, but an upcoming and frequently we do this. I don't want to date the podcast, but I really believe that And when you think about your source of your best people is networking and referrals. So to me is when you think about it, we got an ATS system, we have job postings. Think about how many people in your ATS system and how many people who apply don't get hired, don't even get seen. So you have a lot of, you've got to manage a lot of activity. It's been a lot of activity managing people who will never get hired because you feel you have to do that. So my focus is, hey, don't even post another job. What would you do? You'd start leveraging your, your referrals. So when you think about LinkedIn, LinkedIn is actually a network of 800 million people. Too many people think it's a database of 800 million people. I look at it as, and I'm gonna go back, and I, uh, many years ago, and that wasn't that many years ago, but it was, it was actually about when LinkedIn came out. I had a search for national accounts manager to sell uh, hardware and tools uh, to the big box stores, to the Home Depots, to the Walmarts, to the Targets uh, and Lowe's and et cetera. And as a sales manager, would go there. So, and I could search for salespeople or national accounts manager, but I'm a recruiter. I'm going to get referrals. So what do I do? So I know that I can, who knows the best salespeople? Well, it's the buyers at these stores. So I called the buyers at Costco, and I guess it was Home Depot in Atlanta, and I just started talking to the buyers. And I said, I'm a recruiter. I'm looking for somebody. And it was a pretty cool product. So I defined the product, and he said, no, I just had the president call us. I'll put it up in the store. It was a pretty cool product. So uh, I said, no, I can't do it. I'm a recruiter. I get paid for finding a sales manager or a national accounts manager who's going to call you in about a month. So the guy calls me two days later. Here, there's the guy. He's great. Don't mention my name. I got the name, and that's the guy who got the job. But you just think about who knows people. If I'm looking for a software architect, I'm going to call a project manager. If I'm looking for uh, somebody in uh, sales, I might call customers. If I'm looking for someone, if somebody else last week on uh, a group on link, I guess it's Facebook, secret sourcing. I'm looking for some uh, maintenance people up in Minneapolis, and nobody wants to come here. How do we find people? And all these other people come up words. I said, no, call the vendors who make those parts and ask the people. 
you got uh, the vendors are selling parts to these machines. You've got just call the vendors up, look on their LinkedIn connections, and call one of them. You'll get your candidate. So it's the idea that if you think, you know, this is a that's a tactic. I don't want to that is a tactic. But the tactic is I'm going to be an expert in getting referrals, and I'm going to build a 360 network of uh, nodes and networks, and use LinkedIn to say, hey, who would know this person I can get a referral from. And if you work for a mid-sized company, your employees know hundreds of people. Well, why don't you start talking to employees who might know the person, searching their connections, and rather than saying, who do you know, say, hey, do you know Mary, do you know Karen, and do you know Bill? What do you think of them? So you can search on your connections, connections in LinkedIn, and ask proactively, what do you think of these people? And then you call the person up and say, hey, Mary, I was just talking to Bill over at XYZ Company. He said you're a remarkable person, not that you were looking for a job, but it's that I need to reach out. Hey, by a chance, would you be open to explore something that was better than what you're doing today? Oh, how's Bill doing? You know, and you get, you kind of turn a stranger into an acquaintance. That's what I call a high touch process using networking, but you have to have a real job, which goes to the beginning. What does a person need to do to be successful? So all these pieces tie together, but to me, you leverage networking and you focus on what really matters is a career move. And then you stop spending all this money on overhead, all these people you're never going to hire, and you spend tens of billions of dollars on stuff. That's just a waste of money, just uh, on compliance and management. And to me, that's so obvious. Why would you spend this overhead dollars on all the names in your ATS system are never going to get hired? And yet you got to deal with them because you posted a job that you spent $600 for too. And you got 500 people apply, now you got to spend $600 and deal with all those people apply who are never going to get hired. Waste of money. And if anybody doesn't see that it's a waste of money, they shouldn't be running and posting jobs. Sorry, yeah. John, I don't, I get kicked out of LinkedIn meetings and zip recruiter meetings and indeed meetings because I don't like job postings. I understand you've got a reason for it. There's a great, you've got a great passion behind it and you've got a track record of success on all that. And I, I completely and totally understand. I know when we talked about uh, kind of a initially got connected with each other, you gave that profound advice to me around you know, the, the number one indicator for a successful recruiter is their ability to get two referrals on every single call they make to every single candidate they reach out to. The power of that network, the power of, of those referrals, and even you know, looking within from a promotion standpoint, those three things really stood out to me. I, I really appreciate that. And now with LinkedIn, it's actually easier to get. When I was a full-time recruiter, I would call you up and let's assume you're a manufacturing manager. I didn't know. I just knew that I'm talking to hey, John, you're too big for the job. They say, hey, John, you know, I'm looking for a quality assurance manager as well. Uh, who's the best person you know? Uh, what about at XY? The, I know you, in a prior company, you were with this manufacturer. Who is the best person over there? Well, they're not looking. I really had to work hard to get that referral. Now all I have to do is call you up and say, hey, John, let's connect on LinkedIn. Oh, by the way, when you were with this company, I see that uh, Mary Smith was the QA manager. What do you think of her? Oh, she's great. It's not looking. That's fine. I'll call her up anyway. <laughs> uh, so right now you just proactively you can see the person's name. And it's just that's what and LinkedIn is just God's, it's a gold mine for recruiters. And most recruiters who just want to screen and use the filters and send out emails and hopefully one sticks and wonder why they only get five percent response because they have a boring job to begin with. So I mean, you think about how all these pieces tie together. It's just a gold mine, but people don't want to use it because they get in bottom line, it goes back to your point. They have the wrong talent strategy. Yeah, no. Well, to, to me, not having a strategy is a major risk. And I'm curious as to how you think HR professionals can become better risk takers, which I think is innately not part of their, their, their typical job description or what their duties they're, they're asked to do to be successful. 
see, I this is where let's assume that's a competency, risk taking. I would say, what does that look like on the job? Trying something different. So let's assume it's hey, let's say what Adler says. It sounds weird, but let's try it. That would be a risk. Well, you create a little pilot to do it and test it out and do an ROI evaluation. So there are things. So that's what I always do. People say, well, we need someone who's results oriented. I said, what does that look like on the job? Well, they got to make their quota in six months. Fine. I won't compromise on that. They got to make their quota in six months. That's the results. Uh, they have to have good communication skills. Fine. What does that look like on the job? They got to make uh, monthly reports to the product uh, management team. Fine. We got to find people to do that. So even if they have an accent, don't judge them on the accent. Judge them on, can they make these quarterly reports uh, going through the technical evaluation of a new product to the management team? That's the evaluation. So now you said you need someone who's risk-oriented. What does that look like in HR? Trying something new, improving something. Uh, but so, so that's one way to do it. Bigger picture is I don't think HR people get promoted for being risk-oriented. You don't get promoted for being risk-oriented. You get promoted for being non-risk-oriented. So they don't have the risk-oriented gene built in. Can you adapt it? I don't know. And this is where I go back to uh, the same thing you said earlier about, are they interested in recruiting? There's a risk associated with recruiting because if you fail and it's hard work, it's like sales, you might not make it. You have to have a lot of influencing skills, job knowledge, there's a lot of human nature into it. It is not a compliance job. It is much more associated with solution selling and complicated sales jobs. So the same thing with risk orientation. I don't think people in HR get promoted for their risk orientation. If you're an HR manager today and you believe that you're willing to uh, improve things and change things, now you would, that person, two to three years experience would be the future of HR executives three to five years from now. They already have that built-in gene. Well, then take the risk, stretch yourself, take on a project that you're not really qualified for, get multifunctional, get strategic find that personal gap where you want to develop and take the steps to get there. That's how I would kind of develop an HR person with this risk-oriented uh, orientation gene, so to speak. Yeah, no, I know a lot of times heavy compliance is uh, risk mitigation for organizations, and that's the cornerstone of HR in, in many, many, many respects. And I think it's a, to your point, it's a strategic Miss by executive leaders and HR to to not be willing to put people in stretch positions. Recruiting is probably the perfect one for them, especially if 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 you can make them feel safe that it's okay to fail the first few times as you go no, through. No, they this. shouldn't feel safe. They should feel nervous every single day and fail, <laughs> and they'll figure out, hey, it's not that big a deal to fail. Yeah, I understand. I mean, safe to fail in that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I understand. That kind of a little bit of a safety net, but. Cool. Well, hey, Lou, this has been awesome. I'm going to get you out of here on my last question for every single guest. The podcast is called HR Like a Boss. The upcoming book is called HR Like a Boss. So what would you, how would you describe someone that does HR Like a Boss? It's a good question, but I'd say, so if I was looking at an HR person and interviewing an HR person, I would look for people who've stretched the boundaries of their own work. It could be that they proactively helped other people as a peer, and that's a clear sign of someone who is a good manager. They go out of their way to help someone who they don't need to help get better. Uh, they become a subject matter expert in a certain field and they can train a group of people. They can volunteer for projects that would stretch them. And when you think about 
project management, underline, underline, understanding business systems, under becoming cross-functional. So if I was going to say being HR like a boss, it would be, hey, think like a, a CEO, it's your own P&L, but it's you yourself become a better person and just understand what does it take? And if I was going to give you advice to read a book, it would be Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Own those seven habits. <laughs> you just get that. That will get you in the game right away. I mean, they're different than what I just said, but there's a big overlap there and you'd see every one of them in the thing is there. But when I interview candidates, I'm looking for those seven habits of highly effective people. And they're pretty much tied to that, uh, the trend that I've seen go through. But I would say, do not be a traditional HR person. Be a traditional non-HR person that gets ahead and you will then get ahead as well. Mm, that's awesome. Hey, Lou, I really appreciate you being on the show. I'm gonna take a minute to recap a few things that stood out to me. I'm sure our listeners just are profoundly wondering and scratching their head. How do we do all this different? And Lou, you gave some really unique advice and, and counsel. I love the story of uh, an engineer turned recruiter and this performance-based hiring concept that you've developed to kind of what, what does it take to be successful in the job and, and worrying less about skills, requirements, and competencies. One of the primary responsibilities of any HR professional is to get great people inside of your organization. If you're not doing that right now in HR, you need to find a way to do that. That's a great stretch assignment for you. If you're, even if you're in benefits or compensation or some other role, let's find a way to help your team recruit better talent because they all need it now and forever, frankly. And uh, also you talked about this idea, this formula for success, managing people, managing groups, managing process, managing projects, doing things cross-functionally, it provides a diverse level of business experience, volunteering for jobs you're not qualified for, stretch assignments, ones that you could potentially fail at and that would be okay. Uh, the idea of, of, of having to be different from a strategy standpoint, and I encourage everyone, I'm gonna check out that video, that Catch 22, so we can get a sense as to that, uh, that, that a video that you referenced, uh, Lou, that I thought was really, really neat for people to check out an action item. I also, as a recruiter by trade, love the referred, networked, or internal hire, uh, those being the profound way to get them not through a job posting on one of the job boards, making sure that we are being strategic. The strategy then drives the tactics. And then as far as someone that does HR like a boss, they stretch the boundaries of their own work and others. And I thought that was really, really cool. Lou, thank you so much for being on the show. Great. Thank you, John. Thank you for that great summary. Look forward to talking with you again in the future. Thank you, John. And I, have to sh I have to share one thing with you, Lou, and I want this to be a moment because uh, for me, I, I, sh I, I told my wife after I had a chance to first meet you, and I don't want this to become a sob story for me, but in, in all honesty, I, I lost my dad about two years ago. And when we first connected uh, in Prelude to this uh, podcast, it was the closest conversation I've had to someone that was like my dad. So I, yeah, I really appreciate your insight. Uh, thank you for the work you're doing. My dad was a controversial guy as well. He said things at times that maybe people didn't agree with, but I thought he was ahead of his time. And I, I really appreciate your contrarian thought and your insight. And it meant a lot to me that you've been supportive to me in a very short time that we've had a relationship and I hope we can expand it. So thank Great. you. Thank so you very much. John. I appreciate those comments. They're very nice. You got it. Thank you for checking out the HR Like a Boss podcast. If it resonates with you, please consider leaving a rating or review. And better yet, subscribe and share with a friend. Until next time, let's continue to aspire to do amazingly awesome HR.